Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, around the world to episode 50. Five, zero, 50 of the Napoleon 101 podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. I'm from Brisbane, Australia. With me is my esteemed co-host, as always, uh, President of the International Napoleonic Society, the Honourable J. David Markham. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Markham, sir. Cameron, how you doing? It's great to be back on the show again. It's It's been a little while. Uh, you and I have both been running in, in complete circles, uh, uh, but it's great to be back and, and good to hear your voice again, my friend. How you been? I've been good, thank you, sir. How you been? Not too bad. Busier than heck. Let me tell you, we've, we've got this big Congress coming up in Montreal in June, and, and it's looking better and better all the time. Uh, I, I wish you didn't have a conflict that was going to keep you from coming, but, but uh, we've got 35 speakers, uh, including some from all over the world, uh, Czech Republic, Georgia, Republic of Georgia, uh, Russia, France, uh, uh, U.S. and Canada, of course. So it's, it's looking very, very good. Uh, we are putting together a grand gala dinner uh, on the Thursday night. We've got a wonderful reception on Monday night. So it's it's going to be a great show. And, and our guest tonight, Alex, is going to be there. And, and like I said, we've got 35 people coming. And and uh, what the bad news is, that's really kept me busy. Uh, so that's one reason to our faithful listeners out there that that uh, I just haven't been quite as available to do uh, one of these podcasts. But I hope now we can get back on our, on our regular uh, routine again. I'd just like to be very clear that I don't have a conflict that stops me from going from Montreal. I've just been waiting for my ticket to arrive in the mail uh, from the INS, and it, it hasn't arrived. So um, <laughs> that's, that's, you know... Well, you know, if someone says it's in the mail, you get suspicious right away. <laughs> Why don't you introduce our uh, guest properly uh, for today's very special 50th episode, David? Well, it is. Uh, I, I sort of vaguely remember my 50th, uh, and, and uh, uh, Barbara and I wonder sometimes if, if, if we'll live long enough to, to hit our 50th, since... Uh, We've only recently hit 25, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a momentous occasion, and I can really think of uh, no one better to share it with uh, other than, of course, you, Cameron, uh, than our guest this evening. Uh, just as a refresher for our listeners and some of the new folks who may just be picking up on this, uh, having gone through uh, the entirety of Napoleon's life chronologically, <clears throat> we are now going to begin to invite some very special guests to uh, join us and talk about their research and their take on Napoleon, which may or may not be the same take that, that uh, Cameron and I have. And uh, uh, also to to share some of the the research that they've done and, and some of their own backgrounds, so that our listeners get a better idea of what kind of people are involved in in Napoleonic research and in the INS. And one of the fun things about the fact that I get to co-host this show and invite these people <clears throat> is I get to have some some very good friends uh, come on the show. Uh, we had Jerry Gallagher, for example, who was a very dear friend. And, and, and this afternoon, I'm so happy to welcome another uh, very 
good friend of mine, Alexander Mikavarezzi, uh, who I met many years ago when he was uh, in the Republic of Georgia, and we got together at a conference in uh, Israel, and and it's just uh, taken off since then. And he's now an assistant professor of, of European history at Louisiana State University in, in Shreveport. He holds a degree in international law, so you know. Let's be careful that you don't get into trouble here, uh, uh, Cameron. Uh, he's he'll he'll know what you're guilty of. Well, well, screw uh, Napoleon. Let's talk about Israel and Gaza and the United <laughs> States and you know, Cuba. Oh, and oh yes, yeah. All no, of my favorite code, subjects. N- Maybe the code Napoleon. Anyway, he holds a degree in international law from Tbilisi State University. Tbilisi is the capital, and I, I might add uh, that that he hosted uh, the INS for a congress in Tbilisi. It's a beautiful city. Wonderful people uh, who who do like to have a good time. Uh, I do recall any number of horns filled with uh, wine in the course of the week that we were there, uh, and he hosted us. Like I say, just it was, we took a drive out to the Black Sea and all sorts of neat things. And it just makes me so sad when I hear some of the the, the recent difficulties uh, in that beautiful country. But hopefully, it'll all get resolved and things will get back to to normal. At any rate, so. He he has that degree from Tbilisi State University, and he has a Ph.D. in history from Florida State University uh, that he picked up in 2003 uh, after he actually had worked for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Georgia for four years. So he, he's really got a wide background. He's taught European and Middle Eastern history at Florida State and Mississippi State Universities. He's lectured on strategy and policy for the U.S. Naval War College. In addition to his articles on various Napoleonic-related topics, he's written and edited seven books. The son of a gun is is ahead of me, and you know we we've got to put an end to this, uh, <laughs> including the Battle of Borodino, Napoleon versus Kutuzov, uh, which is an outstanding book, by the way. Uh, Historical Dictionary of Georgia, the Russian Officer Corps, and the Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, uh, which won the INS Literary Prize back in two thousand and five. The Tsar's General, the Memoirs of a Russian General in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, he's got the Legion of Merit Award uh, for all of the fabulous contributions that he's made. He's fluent not only in Georgian but in Russian. And I, I have to say that one of the things that he has really brought to the table when it comes to making a contribution uh, to our, our field is his ability and willingness to access uh, Russian archival material uh, that's never really been used before in English. Uh, He's done a lot of translations and then written a lot of his work based on looking at the Russian point of view as well as the the, the French and the Austrian and so on point of view. And and that's been a a terrific uh, uh, contribution. So without further ado, uh, and with that that modest introduction, uh, how you doing, Alexander? Well, uh, thank you so much for a very generous introduction. Uh, you're very kind to me, uh, David, as always, and uh, Cameron, uh, one, um, hello uh, from Louisiana. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. It is an honor to be here. Actually, I have listened to it for, for the past 49 episodes, so it's, it's uh, quite an honor to be on, the, on this uh, 50th, and I have uh, immensely enjoyed listening to you guys talking about Napoleon, and so it's, it is really an honor and pleasure to be here. 
Well, Devin and I are very, uh, you know, long, long time friends, uh, and uh, probably if not for David, um, I would not be where I am right now. And uh, he probably doesn't realize how much of a role he played in my life because uh, uh, we met actually back in '95 uh, uh, when. Uh, uh, yeah, the lonely student from Georgia uh, emailed David uh, asking about Napoleon, and we you know, we chatted and corresponded. And I, I was probably one of the many who contacted David that year, as in any year. And uh, but uh, surprisingly to me, David invited me to come to Israel for the conference. And not only he invited me. Georgia at the time had very uh, had uh, major difficulties. Uh, we we just emerged after a brutal um, conflicts, uh, ethnic conflicts, and so economy was destroyed. Politically, it's unstable, and uh, the salaries are non-existent. And uh, David kindly actually provided funds uh, from the Napoleonic Society that covered my trip to Israel, which in many respects changed my life because after Israel, I was able to come to the United States and. Uh, do all the research on Napoleon. So, David, uh, I was probably, I would never tell you enough how grateful I am for your help. Well, that's that's very kind. And, and I, I, I think I mentioned this on an earlier podcast when I mentioned uh, my relationship with you. But when people ask me what what my major contribution to the field is, I, I usually say that that whatever I was able to do to to encourage Alexander to, uh, <laughs> to get involved nice. in the field and to come to the United States and 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 get his PhD, that 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 probably is my longest uh, uh, and most important uh, 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 contribution. We also have to point out that that, and I have to say, since we're passing out accolades here, and Cameron's pulling his hair out because we're not talking about Napoleon, but but. Uh, uh, you know, your your family is such a wonderful family, and of course, your wife Anna is just a wonderful uh, young woman, uh, and and it's just been a real pleasure to uh, to be associated with you. And of course, what really ticks me off is, you know, he's accomplished. You, you've accomplished all these things, and I think you're what twenty two years old. So, you know, just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just a bit older than that. Well, of course, you're, what are you? You're, you're about 30. I guess you're maybe 30. I don't know. but Yeah, I am 30, yeah. Well, and yeah, of course, so. the, the great ironic thing is, Alexander, when I discovered David, he was uh, this poor, struggling uh, history teacher, author <laughs> no one had ever heard of. And, you know, now he's internationally famous with this massive global audience. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a big love-in camp. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've heard me say plenty of good things about you, Cameron. Anyway, uh, Alex, uh, welcome to the show. And but I thought what we would do before we get really specific on, on one or two topics, which, which will not surprise anyone to know, will be, will be Russian-related. Tell us a little bit about some of the research that you've done and, and maybe some of the research that you're currently working on. Well, um, uh, in the past, uh, well, I came to the United States in 2000, so most of my Napoleonic research um, has been conducted uh, in the last eight years or so. And uh, I started uh, my, my research um, as an attempt to produce uh, more updated you know, studies on the Russian officer corps. And so uh, my first book was dealing with the Russian officer corps, and it used Russian materials and um, it analyzed Russian um, officers from uh, their social background, 
their accomplishments. Uh, and uh, as part of it, I, I started writing a biography of probably one of the most accomplished Russian general, who at the same time was a Georgian, uh, Peter Bagration. And uh, although the manuscript has been done, has been finished in, back in 2003, I have been revising it constantly for the past five years. So hopefully uh, 2009 will be the year that will be finally out. But uh, next, um, uh, what I wanted to do, I had two, two goals, and I still have them. Uh, one is to bring Russian memoirs, uh, memoirs by the Russian participants, uh, uh, to bring them to the English audience, uh, to the English speakers. Because what happens is in the last 200 years, much has been written about Napoleon, but it is usually one-sided, either, either French perspective or if it's a conflict in the peninsula, it's British perspective. And so I wanted to bring something else, something new. And so I started translating Russian memoirs. Uh, one of them was uh, published uh, in Britain. Uh, that is the, the book that David already mentioned on uh, uh, the memoirs of General Yermolov. But um, I have about two dozen memoirs translated and published online on Napoleon Series, one of the largest websites online. And they have a special section dedicated to Russian memoirs that I'm gradually translating and placing them. So that, that is one direction that I'm doing. And second direction is uh, to produce uh, a, a new versions or new accounts of um, different battles uh, that will incorporate uh, Russian, uh, Russian sites uh, as well as the French or any other site uh, in, uh, that was participating in the battle. And so the first book in that series was Battle of Borodino that, that was published uh, in 2007. And uh, although the book incorporates and shows both sides, uh, the French and the Russian, the emphasis is on the Russian experiences to highlight, to illustrate the, uh, you know, how Russians acted, why they acted so. And uh, a second volume in that series will be uh, the battle on Berezina, also in 1812. And the, the, the book is ready. Uh, I sent it actually to publisher a couple of weeks ago, and it should be out in late summer um, this year. Who's publishing that? Uh, Pen and Sword, uh, that is a British company. Right. Well, they, they've done two of my books, and therefore they are an outstanding publishing company. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, <laughs> well you know, and, and I think, as I, as I said earlier, that's one of the really good things that you've done is bringing this, this different uh, perspective uh, to, to Napoleonic studies, this Russian perspective using the Russian archival material and, 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 and so on. Uh, now, somebody out there will, will sort of scratch their head and say, wait a minute, uh, he's Georgian. Uh, Georgia and Russia did not always necessarily have a, a great relationship with each other. Uh, so why... Uh, be promoting, if you will, the the the, the Russian too, uh, as, since you are, you know, not Russian and Georgian. Is there a particular reason for that, or is it just because of the language? I think, yeah, actually, uh, I think it is quite ironic that uh, uh, at, the, at this time, uh, uh, I think uh, most uh, Russian and the Russian Napoleonic history is written by Georgian because uh, uh, the book that I write from the Russian perspective, uh, there are very few other uh, Russian Napoleonic scholars who, pu who publish in English or publish um, uh, monographs in English. And so it is ironic that the Georgian is writing about Russian side. But at the same time, 
Um, I have been uh, I have been born and raised in uh, in, you know, in Western Siberia, so um, I have been uh, uh, you know exposed to Russian culture, to Russian language from an early age, and uh, I, I I have affinity for Russian culture, I have affinity for Russian language, and certainly in Napoleonic era. Um, I, th- I feel the Russians are not uh, well treated. Uh, quite often they are uh, ignored or uh, um, uh, overlooked uh, because of that language barrier. And um, uh, well, another reason will be that Georgians didn't play any role. <laughs> Much agreed. <laughs> well, that's, I wish that's there were, true. There was a Georgian division fighting somewhere. <laughs> you, you had a very difficult time finding any Napoleonic sites for us to visit when we were visiting Georgia. I have to admit. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, and. And, and the, the the question had an obvious answer, and and it, it makes a very good point. Again, uh, very little attention traditionally has been paid to the Russian material. Uh, there's a lot of people, you know, American or French scholars, for example, or British scholars who 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 have learned German and 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 can do the German and the Prussian and the Austrian files. A, a lot of people speak Spanish or read Spanish and can 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 go to material for the Peninsula campaign. But very few Western scholars certainly uh, have have really been able to 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 tackle uh, the the Russian archival material and and bring that point of view forward and 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 and, and therefore you that's why I say you you, you make a huge contribution to the field in 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 in, in Western Europe and 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 and, and North America Thank and you. Aust- and Australia. you're absolutely right. And uh, besides the language barrier, it's also the the difficulty on the last uh, you know roughly 80 years of accessing those archives. They were either clo- until 1991 they were essentially closed to the West, and since 91 uh, they were periodically open. But um, there is a problem of getting into Russian archive, and it is not only a language barrier, but it also uh, traditional uh, suspicion on the Russian part of the foreign ex- or foreign historians coming and digging in the archives. So it is quite stringent to get into into archives and uh, get material from there. Uh, but uh, and it is uh, sad because in Russia itself you have a very vibrant historical community uh, that publishes uh, numerous uh, studies on Napoleonic Wars, studies that are as as good uh, um, as any in the West. But these studies are virtually unknown in in the West. Western world. Uh, in 2004, Russians produced that, uh, a book that is probably the best encyclopedia on Napoleonic Wars, a massive, uh, almost 1,000 pages uh, that has about 2,000 entries, uh, which is uh, all in color, and yet that encyclopedia is completely unknown in the West, and, but there is nothing equivalent to it uh, that, uh, that was produced in the English world. Well, hopefully that'll change, partially with your working and partially also with the economy. I know that I've had one of my books translated into uh, Russian, and there's some folks trying to get another one done. But the economy uh, in in 2009, uh, being being what it is, it's 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 difficult to uh, to do that. Uh, but let's let's move on, uh, and let me ask you to begin with. Uh, uh, Alex, just to give us an idea of your take on Napoleon, uh, you know, when if you had to sort of summarize uh, how you feel about him, was he a good guy, bad guy, what was his major accomplishments, uh, how, how do you evaluate Napoleon in history? 
I think uh, when I came to United States, well, when I, when I met you and then came to United States, um, I was um, more of a uh, you know the admirer of Napoleon, where I admired everything he did, uh, and then as as I started him. And I went into detail, uh, more in more detail, on studying his actions, his policies. I, I, I do, you know, overall, I, I do admire him. I, I do see him as a, as a unique phenomenon in, in, in European history that, uh, in my view, overall left a positive legacy. But at the same time, uh, I don't see him as this uh, as a hero figure, an ultimate history, hero figure. To me, it's more of a tragic. Uh, personally, he's like a tragic figure who. Who tried to reform France? Who tried to introduce a major change in Europe, and yet ultimately was defeated. And the France, if not for other personalities besides Napoleon, would have ended up worse when Napoleon defeated uh, was defeated when, uh, than when Napoleon came to power. So I, I'm I'm still divided about him. I, I like him a lot, and in, in my lectures, actually, when I, I teach to students, students immediately notice that I am quite uh, enthusiastic about. Him. But at the same time, when I see his actions in Italy uh, or his actions in Spain or in Germany, uh, it, it's, it's difficult for me to be overly positive about him. My students, All right. Well, uh, thanks very much, Alex. It's been nice of you joining us. And um, all, all the best with... Uh... <laughs> I'm afraid, Cameron, we've left you out. I apologize for that. No, no, no. I was just... I, I just know no, we, we don't tolerate Because any... I'm critical of Napoleon. Yes, wants to... We don't no, tolerate any dissenting opinion of Napoleon on this show. I'm Where did you find this cowboy, David? Hey, well, I don't What know. are you doing you know? inviting this? If, if the general knows that you invited this guy on the show, he'd be very displeased. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm afraid plenty of people are displeased with me for far more uh, legitimate reasons than inviting Alex on the show. Well, even I've been critical of Napoleon from time to time. In, See, in Cameron, minor, you're in my party now. <laughs> in, my, in a minor oh, sort of way. Time, now, uh... yeah, now, Alex, I do want to ask you this. Uh, you said if it weren't for some other personalities, uh, France would have been worse off. Who were some of the other personalities you had in mind? Well, the the person that you probably hate the most, uh, for example, uh, I do like a lot Talleyrand. Uh, Talleyrand well, you know, becomes- Alex, it's it really has been nice having you on the show. <laughs> I like him because of what he did at Congress of Vienna. I mean, his his actions at Congress of Vienna for me. Uh, justifies what what he has done since 1807 to Napoleon. <laughs> what was it about? Like- what was it about his actions at the Congress of Vienna that you admire, Alex? Because he he's, he essentially brings France back into international politics. France in 1814 is isolated, and especially in 1815 after Napoleon is back, France is isolated, and it is through Talleyrand's actions that France is kept within international politics, that France retains its status. Because France in 1814 is a defeated power. It is a, defeat, it's a power that, as for, for any other countries concerned, whether it's Russia, whether it's Prussia especially, is, should be dealt with harshly. And it is through Talleyrand that he manages to break through this isolation. So, you know, whether you like him or not, and I acknowledge he's immoral, he's unprincipled, but he's brilliant. I tend to agree with you. I mean, when David and I have talked about Talleyrand before, I've said whilst I don't like a lot of the things that he did uh, and his betrayal of Napoleon and of France in in many ways, I I have to admire his pure rat-cunning intelligence and uh, his his ability to schmooze in international affairs. I mean, he was 
it's it's almost like um, a Carl Rove esque personality to me. You know, <laughs> D- despicable yeah. on so many levels, and yet you have to sit back at some level and go, "Wow, that guy is one smart mofo." You know. But uh, well, there, there's there's some truth to that. Although I have to say that that Napoleon's comment about him being shit in a silk stocking uh, certainly rings true. And I love you know, and on July sixth of of uh, eighteen fifteen, uh, after Fouché in particular, who's actually worse than Talleyrand in many respects, had totally screwed Napoleon, uh, but then had had to basically talk Talleyrand into. You know, uh, supporting him uh, with the, the 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 King Louis the Eighteenth, uh, Talleyrand presented Fouché to 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 Louis uh, and promoted him to you know as as being the Minister of Police. And Chateaubriand, who was a conservative and no Napoleon lover at all, but Chateaubriand, excuse me, Chateaubriand wrote, "It was vice." Leaning on the arm of crime, and I think that that sums up my opinion of those two gentlemen. Vice actually, leaning on the arm of crime, and actually, it's one of my favorite uh, quotes from Chateaubriand. And you're, uh, and I, I, I do agree with him. But what uh, quite often in Napoleonic fields, uh, uh, there is this tendency to associate Napoleon with France. That you know, whatever was good for Napoleon was good for France. Trade Napoleon betrayed France, and I don't share that. I think that uh, Talleyrand's actions, while they, he betrayed Napoleon, it ultimately benefited France. Some, in some ways, they did. I, and certainly, I agree that that bringing France to the table in Vienna and and seeing to it that French uh, uh, interests were being represented, I, I agree. You, you were absolutely correct on that. And and Talleyrand uh, deserves credit. I just remember that it was Talleyrand that that did not tell. Uh, Salim of Turkey uh, about the French expedition to to uh, uh, to Egypt and, and a few other little uh, trinkets here and there where he uh, betrayed uh, Napoleon. Uh, but but no man is all good, Napoleon included, and no man is all bad, uh, Talleyrand and Fouché, and even Markham included. <laughs> Well, let's let's go on uh, to to uh, uh, look at something a little bit more specific uh, related to to your interests and and some of previous podcasts that we did. I think we did two or three podcasts uh, on the Russian campaign, and I know that you've done obviously a lot of research on the Russian campaign. Uh, and I guess the first thing I'd, I'd like to ask you before we talk about anything specific in that campaign is. You know, why do you think that campaign occurred? Uh, who's ultimately responsible, if if anyone, for it? And and do you think ultimately that Napoleon was was justified uh, in engaging in the the Russian campaign of, of eighteen twelve? And and if so, why? And 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 if not, why not? Um, well, in in my mind, uh, the campaign not in, in not in the way it unfolded, but in in general, the, right. the conflict between Russia and France uh, was inevitable because of the difference of interest of the conflict of interest. And uh, although Russia was forced to join the uh, fr- join France and the Continental System eighteen oh seven, it wasn't done willingly, right? It it was done following those devastating defeats in in Poland. Uh, and uh, uh, certainly there were several key um, 
issues that France and Russia disagreed upon. Uh, one was the the future of Poland, of course. Uh, Poland being partitioned by uh, by Russia, Austria, and Prussia three times uh, in the late 18th century. Uh, Russia was the prime beneficiary of those partitions, and of course, uh, Napoleon's moves to recreate the Duchy of Warsaw and ultimately the promise of recreation, recreating the Kingdom of Poland was a threat to, Nepole- uh, to, to Alexander. And in 1810, actually, there was a major discussion, major correspondence between Napoleon, uh, between Russia and France, um, and that was the, the following the Napoleon's promise to expand the Duchy of Warsaw, and uh, Alexander actually tried to f- uh, compel Napoleon to sign a document, a memorandum, in which uh, Napoleon would promise uh, that there will be ne- there, that there will be never that there will never exist a kingdom of Poland. And so there is this interesting exchange of letters between Alexander and Napoleon, which in many actually exasperate Napoleon. And at one moment, he even you know writes in his letters that why are Russians so you know so adamant about it? Why is they you know why are they so stringent about this issue? And, and why uh, were they? Can you? Sorry for interrupting you, but that's a fair question. It seems to me, what was so bad about having the the the, the Duchy of Warsaw uh, there? Uh, if nothing else, as a buffer between Russia and and quote unquote Western Europe. But it's from whose perspective? Well, I know I understand, but I'm asking you to well, explain. That is from French perspective, that was- right? That Duchy of Warsaw will be a buffer. From French but, perspective, but, but, from but why was it so bad from the Russian perspective? Because what? Uh, because how was Duchy of Warsaw created? It was created by taking lands from Prussia and uh-huh. uh, cre- and uh, cre- rec- creating a semi-independent state that was placed under Saxon rule. But, but what happens if? The- oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. But if what happens if well, let's say in 1811, 1812, or later on? Napoleon decides Duchy of Warsaw should be Kingdom of Poland, and so it is an independent kingdom. And uh, Poles suddenly decide that they won't recover the territories they lost. Who do they turn to? Of course, they turn to Russia, because Russia took almost two-thirds of the former Polish state. And so that would mean that Russians will have to surrender their land, because Poles will have a legitimate claim to that territory. Okay, that's a good answer. And I, and I ask the question because I don't think a lot of people realize that that's the ultimate fear of, of Russia, is that it's not so much the Duchy of Warsaw, which in and of itself is, is not so bad, but they perhaps guiltily, uh, but nevertheless, they, they feel that an awful lot of their territory could ultimately uh, come under, uh, un- under attack or, 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 or you know, under pressure to be moved into a, a greater Poland. That's, 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 that's an important point to mention. So, so, and so that that became one of the one of the bones of contention between the two states. Another, for example, were the Russian interests in the Balkan Peninsula. Now, Russia historically had interest in this in this region, and Catherine the Great has fought two major campaigns against the Ottoman Turks in the late 18th century. And so what happens in Tilsit is that in those secret provisions of the Treaty of Tilsit, Alexander and Napoleon agree that uh, Russia will have free reign in the Balkan Peninsula and uh, uh, Napoleon will not oppose it. 
Now, Napoleon promises it because that's, that's the price of Russian friendship. But as, year, as weeks and months pass after Tilsit, uh, uh, he has change of hearts. He's not willing to give Russians free hand in the Balkan Peninsula, and especially he's not willing to give them the free reign, free hand in capturing Istanbul, or former Constantinople. For Russians, this is a major issue, and the, Napoleon's refusal to follow through on this promise, of course, creates another uh, okay. bone of contention. Let me ask you a, a, a quick question, then, looking at it from the other perspective. Uh, if you look at a map, uh, Istanbul is not particularly close to uh, France. The Balkans are not particularly in an area that that France would necessarily expect to have a lot of influence in. Why would Napoleon or, or any French leader really care if Russia uh, had uh, extra influence or even control over over that region? Uh, well, the, the answer will be twofold. One is actually France surprisingly has a considerable interest in the Balkan Peninsula. Uh, that those interests stem from the fact that um, after 1809, uh, French actually have uh, not simply a territory but uh, departments, right? The Dalmatia and Illyria that became part of the French Empire, uh, and so those territories are in the Balkan Peninsula, and from them, French actually. Uh, project their interest. And um, uh, when I was working on, on the biography of Peter Bagration, I see there uh, Bagration's complaints about French consuls uh, in different regions in the Balkan Peninsula interfering with Russian interests and undermining Russian interests. So that's one, uh, one part. But second part is if uh, Russians ultimately control uh, Constantinople, Istanbul, then that means that the Russians can move their fleet through the Black Sea into Mediterranean Sea and start competing with French interests in the Mediterranean Sea. Exactly. So that is the ultimate, that is the ultimate uh, uh, threat to, the, to France. Okay, very good. Now, Go on. Uh, so this is a two, two, uh, two issues. The third issue is the issue of continental system. Uh, this is the issue uh, arising from the fact that Russia joined or forced to join continental system in 1807, uh, agreeing uh, to close its ports to the British goods. Now, this is a decision that is widely unpopular in uh, in Russia, and actually uh, it is looked upon. Uh, there, one of the memoirs that I translated uh, refers to Treaty of Tilsit as ignominious treaty that uh, <laughs> Russia was forced to sign. And ignominious because Russia is looked upon as subservient to French interests. Now, it is in Russian interest to trade with Britain because Britain is the trader, the, the, you know, in, in terms of trade uh, volume, uh, Britain is, not, is in, first, in, the, in the first place. It's a leader. Uh, the Russian exports and Russian economy was based on exports uh, and ex exported natural resources such as hemp, timber, uh, grain, uh, iron ore, all those uh, resources uh, were bought by British uh, merchants to satisfy British industry, you know, the, the developing industry, as well as to sustain British Navy. Uh, for example, British Navy would be buying timber for its masts in, from the Baltic regions of Russia. And so with the continental system in place, Russia cannot trade in any of these exports. The problem is that's why Russian demands they are, uh, in terms of trade. Russian, France 
has no need for masts. The French fleet was destroyed in 1805, and although it was rebuilt, it's not sailing out. So there is no need for timber. <laughs> there is no need for grain. Uh, there is no need for iron ore. And so Russia has all these materials, and we talk about tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of tons piling up in, in ports with no, no one buying them. And of course, that hurts Russian ability, who was involved um, indirectly in trade in the Russian merchants. And so that is that creates the social discontent about why Russia is part of continental system when its system hurts Russian interests. The Treaty of Tilsit is interesting because besides all these you know, harm, uh, harmful uh, aspects for Russia, it also is benefit- it was actually beneficial for, to Russia because in, at Tilsit, Napoleon agrees that Russia can take over Finland. And so it is as a result of Treaty of Tilsit that Russia decides to wage the uh, war against Sweden in 1808-1809 and actually take over entire Finland, which stays in Russian, within Russia until 1917. So there are some elements that were beneficial to tr- Tilsit. But, uh, of course, uh, as, uh, as, a, as it is a human nature, uh, the tendency was to overlook that and to concentrate <laughs> on negative aspects. And, and, and that's, that's an important thing to point out, that it was not totally one-sided. And, and, and you know, all the way up through the Cold War, uh, Finland had a, a particularly special relationship uh, with, with Russia and, and then later the Soviet Union. Let me ask you, uh, Alex, uh, much has been made of the personal relationship between uh, – Emperor Alexander, and, and I want to point out to our listeners that, El, that this Alexander uh, pointed out to me uh, some time ago that, that when I referred to the Alexander of Russia as Tsar Alexander, I was actually incorrect that in those days they were not known as Tsars, they were known as, as emperors, and, and, and I've been very careful not to make that mistake since. Uh, but... but uh, Napoleon, in particular, put, a, I think, a lot of credibility and, and really counted on a lot uh, with his friendship with, with uh, Emperor Alexander of Russia. Uh, he, he thought, much as he did, I suppose, uh, with his father-in-law, the uh, Emperor of Austria, that family or friendship ties would would overcome uh, political difficulties, that if you remember that, that, that you were friends, you could find ways to get around political or economic or whatever other kind of conflicts you might have. Uh, that doesn't seem to have worked real well. What can you tell us about the personal relationship between uh, Emperor Napoleon and, and Emperor Alexander of, of Russia? Well, you had a good point about Napoleon that um, quite often he tended to personalize this relationship uh, or any relationship. Uh, you, you mentioned his relationship with Francis of Austria where he looks at the family, uh, he, Francis, uh, he looks at the emperor as, as his father-in-law and that he will never betray him because that is a family affair now. And we right. know how that out. And um, same same applies <laughs> for the relationship with Alexander, is that uh, Napoleon uh, in develops this report, uh, re- uh, report, a good relationship with him at Tilsit, and he believes that uh, they understood each other. And um, Alexander, on the other hand, is a, 
is is dazzled by Napoleon, by Napoleon's success. But uh, uh, he has these divided uh, feelings about him. On one side, he knows he deal he deals with a with a, a remarkable person, right? A military genius that whose skills he already felt on the fields of Austerlitz. But on the other hand, he feels this uh, animosity, right? Because he has been defeated by uh, by Napoleon, but that he has to be he has to accept conditions that Napoleon sets forth for him. And so, uh, Alexander uh, was known as the charmer. Uh, he's, uh, when, when, he, when, when he needed, he could charm anyone around him. Around him. And so, it tells it that what he does. He talks to Napoleon. He charms in many respects him. The same way that Napoleon tries to charm, charm Alexander. But um, despite the, the, this vision of, that Napoleon offers him of dividing the world into two, uh, the East under Alexander and the West under Napoleon, uh, Alexander seemingly gl- agrees to that, but in reality he's not blinded by this. He, he knows uh, that they, they cannot, co- you know, they, the two have, uh, have interests that are contradictory to each other. And um, it, it is in many respects that actually uh, credit to Alexander that um, he initially resists uh, uh, the, uh, the entire French uh, factions at the Russian court that wants to, to violate the uh, provisions of treaty of Tilsit right away and fight another war with France, but Alexander tries to go it slowly, tries to, to, uh, to take time uh, uh, for it. Uh, but uh, by 1812, of course, the relationship will have soured, and uh, uh, the relationship soured not not as much on personal level. In fact, uh, um, the fact that Napoleon was treated leniently in 1814 uh, can be ascribed in many respects to Alexander's insistence that Napoleon should be treated as such. Sure. But it, it, it soured because of this, you know, state interest, and of course, Alexander represents. You know, he feels that he represents the interest of Russian Empire, and he, and that's his his goal number one is to protect the interests of his state, not his personal feelings. Can I ask a question about that? I've always been fascinated about the, the sort of breakdown in communication and relationship between Napoleon and Alexander uh, around that sort of eighteen ten to eighteen twelve period. Um, the whole marriage to Alexander's sister that Napoleon was trying to negotiate, and he just never got a reply back. And, and you know, just the communications completely broke down between the two, where Napoleon's letters weren't replied to, etc. What do you think was happening there? <laughs> uh, well, uh, it's uh, it's difficult to say no to Napoleon, right? <laughs> and uh, so it's better to just say better to just say yes. nothing at all. Like my mother yeah, always used yeah, to teach me, if you, if you can't say something, forget, right? my mother always told me, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. You think that's what exactly. Alexander was doing? And what happened is when Napoleon put forth that proposal, um, uh, Alexander, of course, is divided. On one hand, he can't say no. On the other hand, he, you know, he doesn't want to allow, uh, to give his. Uh, to, to uh, tie his the family fortunes, of course, to the usurper of the French throne, but uh, <laughs> the main resistance comes from his fa- uh, from his mother, who is adamantly yeah. against it, and so it's because of that, uh, actually, Napoleon knows about it through unofficial channels that um, uh, Alexander is is more in the, you know is still vacillating, but it is his mother that is adamantly against it and. Um, it's not done through officially, right? Officially, he's not rebuffed, but it is done unofficially where Napoleon is uh, made known that this marriage won't work out. Uh, And of course... uh, Yeah. 
wasn't there some the excuse used that she was only 16 or something that she wasn't uh, old enough yet to 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 marry right uh, that was the you know officially the, the why right. why it was postponed is because she was perceived as you know she's too young and uh, later on of course she she was uh, quickly married uh, in 1810 actually <laughs> if i'm not mistaken she's 15 years old uh, because yeah. she, uh, she was born in 95 yeah, she was even younger than Marie Louise. Of course, uh, Marie Louise was not exactly an older woman either when 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 that marriage took place. Well, there but there was also a talk that of Napoleon, you know, trying maybe marry Catherine. Uh, Catherine was older than Anne uh, you know, because I, I believe she was born around 1788, and so she was much older. But uh, that was shut down, quickly shut down because she was quickly married off to uh, Duke of Oldenburg in 1809. And for our listeners, who was Catherine? Uh, Catherine was a sister of of Alexander. Um, Alexander uh, actually uh, had uh, several sisters. Uh, I believe she he had actually four sisters and uh, two brothers. I think so. No, three three brothers. Yes, three and, brothers. I mean, do do you have the same perspective on on this sort of uh, situation here, where Alexander's uh, vacillating and he's got all this pressure from the nobles and his mother, etc. He comes across. He's always come across to me as a bit of a, a, a weak, sappy kind of leader. He, he wasn't. He doesn't. It doesn't appear to me as a very strong, decisive leader through this part of uh, history. You know, he's he's being beaten up by everybody internally in in Russia. Is, is do you have the same perspective, or do you see it differently? Uh, I would I, no. I, I would say you, you got to you know you're right uh, in, in terms of if you compare it to Napoleon. Yes, it's not that kind of uh, decisive leadership uh, uh, where Napoleon makes an outright decision and, that, and that's it. But um, Alexander. Uh, Indecisive because he's torn um, internally. The problem is he's born into probably one of the most autocratic, if not the most autocratic state. Uh, yeah. And yet his education is rather liberal, right? He, La Harpe, the Swiss tutor that Catherine hires for him, teaches him the ideas of popular sovereignty. <laughs> popular sovereignty that will not be exercised in Russia until early 20th century. <laughs> and so here you have this education that is uh, in, in line with enlightenment ideas, in, li- in line with very liberal ideology, and yet he has to play this you know, double, uh, a double role on that. And internally, he harbors the feelings that he wants to liberalize Russia, introduce liberal reforms, but he also understands that he can't do it because nobility is against him. And, of course, he always remembers what happens to his father when, he, when, he, that, when his father pushes for, for change. And so he's a divided person. And, and because of that division internally, yes, he's not come, he doesn't come across as a strong leader, as a decisive leader. And to remind people... Let me people, ask you a, a, real quick, a real quick question since you mentioned it, Alex. Uh, there are some who think he had a role to play in his father's demise. What, what do you think? Um, as far as from my from my reading from my research, uh, I'm pre- I'm convinced that he knew about it. He knew about the assassination. He knew about oh he knew about the coups. Sorry, he knew that his father will be removed. He didn't know that his father will be murdered. Although he had suspicions that something might happen to father. Uh, to of course what you know what will happen to Emperor Paul if he is overthrown? Of course he will not be allowed to stay in his palace. He will be imprisoned, and who knows what will happen later on. So I'm sure he knew about it. And um, although pro- uh, the death of his father was quite unexpected uh, shock to him and there are uh, accounts of him crying violently and sobbing when he heard about how it old, by, by how, old, was how old was he? 
Uh, he was born in 1777, so by that, by 1812, uh, he's, uh, uh, well, by, by 1801, uh, um, how old will that be? Um, well, 24. 24. Now, if I'm 24 and I'm the crown prince and I'm not involved in a coup, and I find out that my father, the, 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 the emperor, uh, may be overthrown, and first of all, Although I was pretty stupid at 24, as most 24-year-olds are, uh, you know, I, I would recognize, I think, that if there's a coup and my father is going to be removed from power, number one, that could be really bad news for my father in terms of he might be removed from power by being, you know, thrown into the river, uh, a la Rasputin. Uh, and number two, that might not be real good for me. Because if they don't like my father as ruler, how do I know they're going to like me as ruler? So I might try to do something to stop that, to warn my father or whatever. Any evidence that he took any kind of action at all along those lines? No, no. but the, the reason for that will be that it's not that he disagreed with the whole premise of <laughs> his father being, <laughs> being removed. Mm-hmm. The reason being that uh, uh, Paul uh, in 1801, uh, you know, by that time, by 1801, uh, Paul uh, is uh, 47 years old. Of course, everyone expects that he will be living maybe another 25 he's, years, 30 years. He's so a it's kid. A long he's a kid. <laughs> right? <laughs> he's a long time to wait. But most importantly, Paul is pushing a rather unpopular agenda, agenda, a, a series of reform that four Russians feel alien. And uh, quite often these are German-influenced uh, or German, uh, you know, Germanic uh, themed or felt uh, uh, un- very unpopular in Russia. And so, what Alexander uh, hints, or at least he's uh, the nobility looks at him as, uh, that he will be more traditional Russian ruler. That is, he will be ruling as Ru- in, in, in terms of Russian tradition and not uh, as Paul did from this outside, from, uh, you know, like a rogue um, emperor. And so sure. that's why he's not thinking about that I might be killed like my father, but rather he believes that he will change whatever harm his father has done. That's fascinating. I mean, we, we could talk for hours just on, 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 on that subject. Uh, so we, we've gotten now to, to why Napoleon and, and you know, Napoleonic France and Alexandrian Russia, if you will, have a conflict in, in 1812. Uh, what can you tell us, uh, Alex, about the preparations on each side and the expectations on each side as the apparently more and more obvious uh, conflict uh, began to loom? Um, well, um, probably French side is more well-known, and most of the listeners are more or less familiar with the French side. So, uh, but if, the for no other reason, so- if for no other reason, because I talked extensively about it a few episodes. <laughs> yes, so it's all us, concept- give, us, give us the Russian side, then. Uh, well, the Russians have been preparing for war since 1810. 
um, they have uh, they they realize that the conflict is inevitable and there will be a war. And uh, over the next year and a half, eighteen ten, well, almost two years, uh, there there was about uh, one scholar actually one Russian scholar counted about thirty thirty four uh, different plans, um, uh, strategic uh, plans that Russians developed. And so what they did actually they start they studied um, British experiences in Peninsula. And especially uh, the, the operations of uh, Arthur Wellington, Wellesley, uh, in uh, in Portugal, and they gradually they they came uh, they came to conclusion that um, one the best way to fight against Napoleon is through defensive uh, warfare, and so they especially studied the lines of Torres Vedras uh, that uh, Wellington built in in Portugal, and sure. that idea of uh, the lines that uh, Wellington used to defeat um, Marshal Massena in 1810. And into 1811 uh, came uh, allowed the Russians to come to this conclusion that maybe we should have a fortified camp uh, where Napoleon will be stopped. And so that that allows um, uh, the general fool uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, to develop <laughs> a, a plan uh, that that Alexander will use as a, as a, as a chief strategic plan. But besides in English, plan, in English, an unfortunate name. <laughs> Very unfortunate. You're a fool, yes. <laughs> Although it is, yeah, it's pronounced as fool, but it is spelled as P-F-U-E-L, so fool. Uh, and so, but besides fool's plan, uh, there are, uh, as I said, a couple dozen other plans, and uh, some of them are uh, offensive in nature. Uh, for example, uh, General Bagration comes up with a plan in, uh, in, 18, uh, in late 1811-1812, which calls for uh, anticipating Napoleon's attack and attacking Napoleon in Poland and then moving rapidly into Prussia where uh, Russians um, should help inside national uh, a German national movement against Napoleon. Uh, but uh, those those plans were quickly shut down when it came obvious that Napoleon has overwhelming force concentrated in Poland. Another, another th- an, an important plan that is... Uh, completely unknown in the West, but that plays a very important role in Russia. Uh, It's relatively well known in Russia. Is the plan developed by an official in in the Russian uh, Ministry of War by the name of Chuikevich. Uh, Chuikevich writes a memo for Minister of War Barclay de in which he writes that the only war Russians should fight against Napoleon, it is a war of scourge earth policy. Retreat as far as you need and destroy provinces, because the further you learn Napoleon, the better. And so quite often there is a discussion whether, Nepal, whether Russians had a plan to retreat. And Chukevich's plan is exactly that. Chukevich uh, writes about the need to retreat as far as possible, uh, stretch Napoleon forces, and then counterattack and destroy them. So and what that, was his role? What was his official position? Uh, he was a head of one of the departments in the Ministry of uh, in the Ministry of War under Barclay de Tolly. Okay, and so his name is uh, Chuikevich, and so he writes. Actually, uh, the, the the plan will be later on uh, pa- uh, published as a, as a separate pamph- uh, pamphlet. Uh, and his name is uh, Peter Chukevich. Uh, he was head of the Secret Chancellery, uh, and so he uh, he talks about the need to retreat and then counterattack. And uh, uh, he actually uh, writes in this memo uh, that the Spanish example uh, makes it clear that fighting a traditional war against Napoleon is is uh, 
is a losing case that we need to conduct a war that uh, Napoleon is not accustomed to. And that would be a retreat and starting a guerrilla war. And so he, he talks about abandoning uh, vast territories to Napoleon to force him to divert his forces and then counterattacking. And so Trichkevich's memo, which is uh, written in a, uh, late 1811 and it is submitted officially in April of uh, 1812, uh, certainly shows that Russians considered uh, uh, the retreat. Uh, but when the decision is made uh, right, to retreat gradually, of course, no one expects to retreat uh, far, you know, f- far deep into Russia. Um, there are several memoirs that I have came across where uh, the participants say that the expectation was that the Russian armies will retreat to, uh, quote, ancient, our ancient frontiers. And ancient frontiers mean that uh, retreat to Russian frontiers as they were before uh, Polish partitions in, 18, in 18th century. So they were, they were ready to surrender as, as part of this military campaign to surrender, to abandon the Polish, uh, Lithuanian Polish provinces, but defend the, uh, the traditionally Russian territories. Uh, Would that be as far as Smolensk or, or not? Almost, yes, almost as, as far as Smolensk, yes. And what did they think was going to happen then, though, Alex? <laughs> they thought Napoleon would give up and go home? I mean, what, what was the next part of that strategy? Well, in that, if you listen to Chukevich or if you listen to Barclay de Tolly, what happens is, um, well, Barclay de Tolly himself has a, another plan that he actually puts in place since 1810. And what he does is he creates a series of... Uh, uh, um, uh, a series of lines, um, uh, actually three of them in, in total. The first line is where you have those active field armies, you know, the three active field armies. The second line was uh, a mix of fortresses and the reserve corps, and the third line was uh, reserve, reserve forces. And so what will happen is as Napoleon invades, he will face uh, the active armies, which will gradually retreat. Of course, as part of that invasion, as he pursues, he will have to stretch his lines of communication which will be exposed to flanking attacks by the Russians. And by the time he will reach second and third line, he will have to deal with fortresses. And so that will uh, divert more forces from Napoleon. And if the war continues long enough, then weather elements and Russian attacks will wear down Napoleon and force him either to, to negotiate or just get the hell out of Russia. They, they probably, I mean, knew that Napoleon expected it to be a quick battle and had sold it to everybody as being a quick battle. I think he, uh, a la uh, President Bush, kind of said, we'll be in and out in a month. <laughs> and uh, so, so they thought if they just drew it out long along that he would, uh, you know, uh, be, have uh, domestic uh, pressures to, to end it and negotiate. Yes, uh, most, of, most of the officers... Uh, uh, most of the generals and officers agreed with that, but the, not all of them. And so, for example, uh, Bagration is one of the most famous cases when he is adamantly in favor of attacking. Uh, or even though he knows that uh, Napoleon's army outnumbers Russians, he wants to attack and fight Napoleon on the field of battle. You know, let's fight, may, let's make a decisive battle and defeat Napoleon. Uh, and so gradually, as the Russians retreat more and more inside Russia, these, uh, the supporters, the number of people who support Bagration's view increases. Mm-hmm. And of course, eventually, by late August, that leads to dismissal of Barclay de Tolly, who was more in favor of retreat. So, you know, 
along that same line as you as you just suggested the 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 Russian army had been commanded by uh Bagration and de Tolly. Uh, Ditoli not being Russian, uh, uh, by the way, as the name would certainly indicate. And then Alexander makes a, I think, a momentous decision. He pulls from what I gather is almost obscurity, uh, uh, you know, General Kutusov, and says to Kutusov, you are now in charge of both of the two major Russian armies. Uh, I forget the Army of the North, the Army of the South. I forget what the exact titles were. Uh, and I want you to defeat Napoleon. Uh, how, how important a decision was that, and what caused Alexander to make that decision? Um, well, um, what happens by by August when the Russian armies, uh, the first Western and second Western armies, united Smolensk? Uh, there is a conflict uh, on one uh, conflict between uh, supporters of Bagration and supporters of Barclay de Tolly. And as David already mentioned, it is rather ironic that here you have two armies led by. Uh, non-Russians. Uh, Barclay de Tolly, originally his family is from Scotland, but he was born and raised in, in the Baltic provinces, which were predominantly Germanic, and Bagration is, of course, a, jo- a Georgian. And so, right. these two generals, uh, they clash over these, over these perceptions of what has to be done. Bagration believes that Russians must counterattack and fight Napoleon. How, you know, how much, how, where else should we go? How much of the land should we surrender, he asks. And Barclay de Tolly believes that it's not time, you know, time is not ready for it. And so supporters of Bagration include almost all prominent generals of the Russian army, including uh, the brother uh, of Alexander, the uh, Grand Duke Constantine. And so all of these generals write directly to Alexander, telling him that something has to be done, and of course something means Barclay de Tolly must go. And Bagration actually himself is approached by a group of generals saying that we must seize um, the commander's, you know, the commander, uh, the, the, the position of the commander-in-chief by force. Let's remove Barclay de Tolly by force. And Bagration says, no, that is a foolish. We, I can't do that. And so there is even that group that you know, wants to use force to remove Barclay. And Alexander understands that he has to appease public opinion. And that is why he organizes, actually, the decision to appoint is not died by him. Uh, uh, but rather he organizes a special committee which uh, includes prominent generals and uh, uh, government officials. Uh, and so that committee considers different uh, candidacies. Uh, um, they, they quickly dismissed all the field marshals uh, all the, uh, that Russia had at the time. There were three of them because they were all too old and they were over 70s. And so they started looking at different generals, Bennings and in others, and they disqualified them for different reasons. And finally, they came up with a conclusion that the only general who, who, might, who will be uh, accepted by the army, meaning by the officer corps, and that uh, will enjoy support from the society, from public opinion, is Kutuzov. Uh, Kutuzov at the time was a governor. He was, appointed, he was nominated by this committee to Alexander. And uh, as most of listeners probably know, Alexander actually has tensions with Kutuzov. He doesn't like the uh, Kutuzov. Uh, not uh, the, these tensions start uh, right after the assassination of Paul back in 1801. 
uh, that at that time, Kutuzov was a governor of St. Petersburg, and so the, he was uh, actually quite close to Paul. Uh, there is uh, this moment when actually Kutuzov was the last person to have a dinner with uh, Paul on the eve of his assassination. Oh, and then, of course, uh, the the affair of Austerlitz, where Kutuzov suggests a very sane, right, very reasonable solution to the conflict, that meaning that the Reds retreat and regroup, and Alexander insists on battle, and the Russians lose. And so when Kutuzov is appointed, and he arrives to the army on 29th of August, uh, he looks around, and he publicly, of course, uh, criticizes Barclay de Tolik, he criticizes uh, that uh, Russians should not be retreating, that Russians should fight, and then on 30th of August, he decides, well, let's retreat a bit more. And so, um, but unlike Barclay de Tolly, who actually spoke a rather broken Russian, who was um, a, a character-wise very aloof, uh, a cold, a reserved personality, Kutuzov is a Russian who understands Russian mentality. He wants things has to be done. And so what he does, he plays a game. He, on surface, he tells people what they want to listen uh, but in reality, he understands that Barclay de Tully was right all along. And so he continues retreat, and he fights Battle of Borodino uh, largely because of public opinion. He knows that uh, this is not the battle he probably will win, but he needs to appease public opinion. And so he fights it in uh, September of 1812. Sure. And, and first of all, by the way, of course, it's the first and second Western armies. Gee, that's even in Napoleon for dummies, but I had managed to forget that. Uh, now, Borodino is is one of those really, really interesting battles, in in, in my opinion. Uh, as, as as you know, and as our I think our listeners know, I've twice gone to conferences at Borodino, and I have to gently uh, remind our Russian hosts that it was at least technically. Uh, a, a French victory in the sense that the French uh, still uh, held the field and, and it was the Russians who, 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 who left. Uh, what is your assessment of the importance and the outcome of Borodino? And particularly, uh, is there anything Napoleon could have or I really should say should have done uh, that would have made it a, a more decisive victory? Uh, actually, it is quite. Uh, it is a simple question, seemingly, but it is a difficult question because um, I never uh, ask simple questions. <laughs> <laughs> but see, it, it, you know, we could easily say that, oh yes, Napoleon could have done this and this and this. But in the reality, his options are limited, and uh, uh, they are limited by the fact that Napoleon is, of course, concerned that Russians might retreat if he attempts anything, but. A, a frontal attack. And of course, Davout famously proposes that flanking um, attack, and Napoleon uh, refuses to do it because he's concerned that Russians will pack up their backs and leave. And so he settles on these uh, frontal assaults on, on the Russian positions. And uh, Borodino is an interesting, uh, is an interesting case because uh, uh, Russians actually, as, as David already indicated, until uh, 1990s, uh, uh, the most books written in Russia, especially during Soviet era, portrayed Borodino as a great Russian victory. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, you know, it, uh, well, I'll bet it was difficult to... Uh, uh, you know, you know, it certainly raised the question: If it's victory, why Russians retreated? But <laughs> since 1990s, what, what, what I, when I made those comments, I got some frowns. Yes. 
<laughs> but uh, in the, since 1990s, actually, there are very good studies in Russia that uh, embrace the fact, yes, it was a French victory, uh, uh, but there is this qualification. It is a victory that, uh, that is probably a Pyrrhic victory, uh, yes. Uh, yes. a tactical victory, but uh, uh, that produced no strategic gain. And uh, for, for the uh, – it is also an interesting battle uh, in many respects because Russians uh, have – numerical superiority. Uh, the Russians have about 155,000 troops. Uh, Napoleon has about 133,000, uh, of which about um, you know, 15,000 do not participate in the battle. So uh, Napoleon actually fights with numerically inferior uh, troops. On the other hand, also, Napoleon actually has less of artillery. He has about 587 guns against uh, roughly 640 uh, guns in Russian army. And uh, despite that numerical superiority in artillery, Rush, French artillery performs much better than the Russian outshines them and outguns them. And so Russians' losses actually are largely from uh, French artillery. Uh, the, the what Napoleon could have done is probably be more involved in the battle. Uh, if he, you know, you know, there is a lot of written about him being sick on that day that he, that he had uh, he had problems uh, uh, health health wise, and so he stayed uh, rather gloomy. You know, as, as that famous painting by a Russian uh, artist uh, Vereshchagin portrays him sitting on on a drum, right uh, with a with a leg on the drum and looking distantly at the battle. He probably sure. should have, you know, he should have been more involved in the battle. Uh, there are several incidents uh, when uh, he, he, he could have uh, acted more uh, decisively, and one of them is uh, towards the noon afternoon when the French uh, uh, attacked Semyonovskaya on on the on the Russian left flank, uh, where mm-hmm. he, could, he could have paid more attention there. Uh, what but, could he have done there? What could he have done? Well, actually, uh, the problem is the French uh, French attacks come disjointly. Uh, it's initially it's a French infantry that attacks, then French cavalry that attacks, and so there is no coordination of actions. It and sounds uh, like that's Waterloo. why I'm saying that's why I'm saying that on one hand we can, you know, in hindsight we can say that, but at the same time, when I imagine the scale of this battle, when I imagine the the turmoil, the chaos, the, the smoke of it, it's it's of course it's difficult to observe all of it. Uh, and be on, on, you know, having to have your hand on pulse everywhere, and so it, it is a, it's a difficult call, uh, call to make. Uh, well, more sure. criticism from Go, my ahead. side Go is ahead. actually directed again uh, towards Russian actions, where Russians completely misunderstood or mis uh, failed to understand, failed to perceive Napoleon's actions. And so Russians could have ripped greater benefits from this battle than they did. Uh, the How Russian so? deployment. Uh, Russian deployment, of course, uh, was heavily uh, on the right flank. Uh, almost uh, two-thirds of the Russian army were concentrated on the right flank, and in the, in the center and right flank, because that's where Kutuzov expected major attack. And uh, the left flank was ra- largely defended by Bagration's army, which by now was weakened uh, from the previous marching and the losses. And Bagration actually uh, raises the issue with Kutuzov that uh, left flank has to be 
uh, reinforce that more troops have to move down and Kutuzov shuts it down. And then when the battle begins, right, when Bagration is overwhelmed by the attack of uh, three French corps, uh, then Kutuzov realizes and starts sending troops from the extreme right flank. Uh, in, in that case, Second Corps of Bhagavad uh, is ordered to march from extreme right flank all the way to the left flank. And, of course, it is a waste of about two hours, uh, two and a half hours before the, the corps arrives. So he, uh, the Russians could have adjusted much, uh, much better. Second is uh, that famous uh, the cavalry raid. Uh, initiated by Platov and Ovarov in, uh, towards, um, after, towards noon uh, on September uh, 7, when uh, uh, Kutuzov essentially allows cavalry to charge without supporting it with anything else. No, uh, there is no infantry support, and so cavalry attack fails. Now, if there was more active involvement on Kutuzov's part, then that cavalry raid might have produced greater results, right? Diverted French attention, forced Napoleon to move troops or maybe something more tangible. As it is, the raids failed. And uh, it is the, the battle as it ends, it is a testimony to the Russian soldier that after being pounded by the French artillery uh, for, for almost 10 hours, they still held ground despite suffering these horrendous losses. Um, the, the modern estimates ra- uh, say that around 45,000 uh, Russian soldiers died and were wounded in this battle. And 45,000, that is out of one, uh, 155, right? a third of the army, almost a third of the army was uh, dead and wounded in, in the battle, which is staggering. Yeah, that's that's a really big number. I'm I'm struck by your comments uh, first about Napoleon's uh, uh, lack of involvement and some of the uh, uncoordinated attacks. First the infantry, then the cavalry, then the infantry, and 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 now on the Russian side, a, a cavalry attack uh, unsupported by infantry. Uh, a lot of that sure sounds like uh, a, a a lead up to. To, uh, to the Battle of Waterloo, where, of course, the French were guilty of, of that exact uh, mistake, uh, uh, un, un, uncoordinated attacks and, and a cavalry attack without infantry uh, uh, support. So in the final analysis, then, we find that the, the uh, French are victorious. They hold the field at the end of the day. But Kutuzov has, as I've pointed out before, he has, it seems to me, accomplished his primary goal. And his primary goal, I mean, in theory, defeat the French. But if he didn't really think that was real likely, his primary goal seemed to me always to preserve the integrity of the Russian army, to to have it available in, in, in pretty good order to fight again uh, the next day. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. And uh, the clear example of it was what happens a week from Borodino, uh, that uh, on 13th of September, Kutuzov has that famous war council at Philly, where he uh, conveniently, very conveniently, organizes a council of war. And this is a, a typical Kutuzov style, where <laughs> he knows what he will do. Yeah, he knows that he will abandon Moscow. But the problem is, this is a, this will be highly unpopular in the society, right? 
that no one wants to see the capital surrendered. And Sarah for Kutuza wants to do it, to to come to this decision on uh, as if the decision never came from him that it was put upon you know, was proposed to him. And so at the sure. council of war, he has about a dozen different generals, and uh, he asks them. What do you, you know? What is your solution? Should, what should we do? Fight at Moscow or surrender it? And each general, pro, you know, expresses his opinion, and uh, majority of them suggest to abandon Moscow. And then Kutuzov say, "Oh well, if most of you say that Moscow should be surrendered, then I'm I'm okay with it." <laughs> and so <laughs> officially, it's not he, you know, he 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 knows he have, he will do it, but he also makes this safeguard right against potential attacks, criticism, by creating this council of war. But do, do you his think goal that those, is to save army. Do you think that those people in his council, I presume this is that time he was in that little hut that's now been moved right. to, to, yes. to Moscow by the – do you think that, uh, that the people who were voting, as it were, to abandon Moscow knew that that's what Katusov wanted and maybe that's why they were saying let's abandon Moscow? Uh, uh, he, Yes and no. Uh, if actually uh, there is a good description of um, of this council by in, in the memoirs of General Yermolov, and so Yermolov actually uh, uh, he's quite shrewd and he knows what Kutuza wants, and so he reads through it. But um, they also understand what what the situation required, and so they express their their view, uh, uh, you know, believing in in what they say, uh, and so. Younger generals, uh, more, you know, younger generals were more in favor of, of defending city, but the older generals uh, realized that it cannot be done. Uh, you know, we have to remember that it is only one week after after Borodino that uh, you know Russian army is, is still uh, has suffered a lot at Borodino, and it, it was uh, all the soldiers who were willing to fight. Uh, Kutuzov knew that he needed reinforcements, he needed uh, ammunition to, to fight another major battle against, against Napoleon, otherwise it would have been a waste of life. And so that's why he decides very smart. It, 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 ultimately, it is a very shrewd decision. As Kutuzov famously describes, Moscow will be a sponge right, that will suck in the French army and destroy it. And that's exactly what happens. It, it's what happens because of, of, of Napoleon hanging around too long. Let me ask you a, a little sort of a side question, Alex. Uh, in, in War and Peace, uh, you know, we, we have the elite of Moscow watching the Battle of Borodino from some distance. Uh, did that really happen? Not to my knowledge, uh, no, um, um, or at least I, I haven't come across. There were some, actually. There are some, um, 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 a couple of noblemen who went there uh, to observe the battle, but nothing on that, you know, in, in groups. Um, I know that, uh, for example, Vyazemsky, who is famous Russian poet, was in the battle as a volunteer, uh, but um, I, don't, I, I don't recall any you know, family gatherings to observe the um, of the, of the battle, it, it wasn't an afternoon social engagement, and, and there was no guy, <laughs> and there was no guy named uh, Pierre running around, uh, you know, no. on the batteries. Okay, well, that's not at all. What but I've, but uh, not at all. But uh, you know, coming uh, just to comment on your uh, social, uh, you know, like a social gathering, as you said. Um, actually, there is uh, in the memoirs of Walzogen. Uh, Walzogen was a. 
uh, German adjutant to Barclay de Tolim, and once again has a very critical view of Kutuzov, and he famously describes that um, as he, uh, you know, galloped on his horse to report to Kutuzov, uh, he saw Kutuzov and his adjutant sitting on a small hill, uh, eating uh, chicken wings and drinking champagne. So <laughs> at, least some, at least somebody was entertained. <laughs> well, that's that's wonderful. Well, now, ladies and gentlemen. We we've we've gotten the the French army and Napoleon uh, about to enter Moscow, and, and we've we've learned a, a a great deal from the last uh, little over an hour uh, of of our discussion. One of the things that we've learned, and I I, I want all of our loyal lis- listeners to to make sure they get this, that. Markham isn't the only one who, once you get him started talking about Napoleon, uh, can fill up an hour pretty doggone quickly. Uh, <laughs> Alex has, has shown us that, that a lot of us in, in our field who are so interested in this and have put so much of our, of our lives into it, once we uh, get going, we, we can come up with a lot of stuff. And Alex, you have really brought up some fascinating points and some really, really important discussion. Uh, Can I get you to come on again next time? Anytime uh, for you guys. You do a very good job, and uh, it is, as I said, an honor and a pleasure to be uh, on on the podcast. I have enjoyed our podcast before, and it is a really pleasure to be on it. Uh, So anytime, just... uh if, I hope you don't mind me be critical of Napoleon. No, no not no, at no, all, no, no. Alex. I've been, <laughs> I've been saying to David for the last couple of months, I want to get more people on who disagree with uh, us about Napoleon because I, I think it's important that we hear the other side of the story. And uh, I think you were a nice light entry into that. I, you know, you're not one of the guys who says he was the devil, but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a gentle oh, no. easing into this. Oh, no, wait yes, till I get Asdell or someone like that on here. Alan <laughs> Shom. Why do we get Alan Shom on? Oh, we're not. No, no. Even I won't allow Alan <laughs> Alan Shom on. Uh, but 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 we Alex and I have some mutual friends, uh, uh, including some that we've that you and I have mentioned in the past who are who are less uh, infatuated with uh, with Napoleon. Uh, but we've, we we do want to finish the Russian campaign and, and hear more from you, Alex. And so I think, fabulous, for, Alex. I think for Thank now so we, will, we will sit here with Napoleon on the outskirts of Moscow. Again. Uh, and uh, next time we will we'll go on in and, and take over the Kremlin. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Alex, that, that, that was truly wonderful. I mean, this is a fan, fascinating period of uh, the whole uh, uh, wars of the continent, and um, it was you know, really great for you to come on and give us that uh, other perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Um, so it, it was a pleasure.